I made it. Can you just tell me a little of the story? Okay. The story is called Pinky Tinkerbank Saves the Stars. Pinky Tinkerbank and her mommy were best friends. Morning. They went to the park together, played dress up together. Then one day, Pinky's mommy got sad. Every night before bed, Pinky would wish on a star. Hello, Miss Davis. Can you tell me what happened? But little by little. Julie, hey, it's okay. It's okay. The stars were starting to disappear from the sky. There was nothing left for her to wish upon. What if you stop loving me? I'm never gonna stop loving you. You can do this, Jewel. You can. I was walking through a world that was black and white. Now I'm just starting to see color again. Sometimes the stars are blocked by the clouds. But even if you don't see them, they're always there. Hey there, this is Ashley, and you're listening to the Motherhood Unfiltered Podcast. I am so glad you joined us this week. As usual, our topic is about real life, unpolished, imperfect, and unfiltered. I keep it real so you can too. I don't take it for granted that in the little bit of time you have to spend on yourself each day, you choose to spend it with me. So let's get ready to be refreshed, to laugh a little, maybe cry a little, and celebrate all the things we face together as we discover our purpose in and out of motherhood. You guys, I have been waiting months to do this podcast episode. It's phenomenal. And when it was brought to me, I was in tears and I said, yes, yes, yes. I didn't even hesitate. I didn't need to process it because the message that you're about to hear is needed. It is needed among moms and women alike. Okay. So we are going to be talking to my friend from California, Amy Koppelman, who is the author of three critically acclaimed novels. So honored to have her on Motherhood Unfiltered. A Mouthful of Air, A Smile Back, and Hesitation Wounds, a 2016 independent publisher book award winner. Woo. She produced and co-adapted the film adaptation of I Smile Back starring Sarah Silverman, who received a SAGA award nomination for the role. The film premiered at the Sundance Toronto and correct me, Amy, if you can do because I'm horrible with names. All my <laughs> listeners, all my <laughs> listeners know it. Okay. So <laughs> I, I almost didn't graduate college because I failed the French oral and I just kept going, see who play, see who play. Um, so you're looking to the wrong person to speak French. Well, Say we got it. We got to take care of each other. Like, I'm just like, Rah! yeah, it's like, I am a writer, but like, okay. So it's, God is so funny. So I'm a writer and I have my memoir coming out in like, a few months. And I love writing. I always have poetry, all of the things. But when it came to the grammar aspect of it, like I was the girl that got two, two and two wrong. Okay. So, right. right? And so like, and it's because of my childhood trauma and, you know, whatever, but like, I wasn't taught those things. It just was like something, it's like something that came born from 
healing and what helped me. And and then like, the, I'm like, oh, you have to worry about the grammar part when I went to college. I'm like, Woo! so definitely intimidating. I, uh, in my family group chat text this morning wrote, it took me six times to figure out how to spell check the word Martian because I can't spell it all. I'm terribly dyslexic. And it wasn't until the sixth time on Google, like I'm so bad at spelling that I actually misspelled the word Martian, which is just a very easy. Right. Um, Not for me. I'm also just like, I am that too, but I didn't know that till I was an adult. Like I never got tested for that or anything. I just like, I was really good at faking it. <laughs> I was yeah. taught to fake it real life. When you, when you are taught to fake it, you get very comfortable faking Yes. And that's a part of the part of the conversation, but I'll be quiet. Sorry. That's why. No, but that's why I wanted to do this because I went through worthlessness to fake it, to make it to, you know what, this is who I am and really finding Mm -hmm. my true identity. And this resonated with me. The latest film that we're going to be talking about is a mouthful of air. Oh my gosh, you guys, I'm so excited about it. And this is her undertaking as a screenwriter, director, producer, and illustrator. Amy Mm -hmm. lives in New York City, but she recently just moved to California, right? Yes. Yes. And she is an outspoken advocate of women's mental health. You guys, I'm so excited about this. But first, my listeners who are out there, I'm always thinking of you, whether you're in the car, the bathtub, you're scrambling to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for all your babies, you're in bed, whatever it is, you know, I'm going to pray for you. All right. So Amy's going to join me and we just want to pray for you today. I thank you, Lord, for this conversation, this much needed conversation. I thank you for the work that Amy is doing to raise awareness on something that we feel as women sometimes shamed to talk about, Lord Jesus. And I just thank you that you're just going to cover this conversation and that you are just going to protect us and shield us and that the message that needs to be said is going to be said. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. So I'm really excited to have you. And we got a little off there. And so would you do me a favor? Because I want to make sure that they get to know you more. Could you tell us a little bit more about who you are, right? And and what it is you're going to be talking to us about today. I'm a mom. I'm 51, almost 52. I'm a wife. I've been married to the same wonderful person for almost 30 years, which is just crazy. And it's still almost impossible for me to say. So I always have a qualifier, like, and I'm trying to be a writer. I'm a writer. You're all the things trying to be a writer. (laughs) Like we're literally about to talk about a movie that was a novel that is going to be starring. Just talked about that. Amanda. We just talked. I, I mean, you and I are some combination, but I went to Canada for the Toronto Film Festival for Small back and I was at Customs and they said, what are you here for? And I said, work. And they said, what do you do? And I said to myself, if you cannot tell this man at Customs that you're a writer, when you're here to go see the movie, you need so much more therapy. So I said, I'm a writer. <laughs> and then, you know, it's still... I'm still always feeling fraudulent, sincerely, because, you know, you look at a blank page. I look at a blank page and it's just always daunting. How are you going to get to the truth? Like, how are you going to find the words to express something that you're feeling that you want to talk to with other people about? How are you going to 
figure out the the most distilled way to say that truth, it's always daunting. So that's why I think it's hard to say I'm a writer. Yeah, I see. That's a beautiful way to put it. Super deep. But then on the other hand, I think everybody's a writer because if, you know, you go for coffee with your friends and you're like, you know, from the time you're little and he was like really mean when we were playing kickball, you know, and you're telling a story, you're a writer. There's just because you can tell a story. So there's just something about that page, that like page that just is daunting to everybody. Yeah. Well, I think it's the realm of like, even in regard of this interview, I, I think that we are all writers and we, we're all creatives. And I've had this conversation with somebody and we all have a story, right? We all have a story, a really great story that could possibly help somebody else. But when you come to like, it becomes a thing, right? Becomes, I don't know, a label. There's this birthed pressure. We can, what do our minds want to do? Overthink it. We want to perform it. We want to make it look a certain way. I definitely can see that. But when we learn to like own it and like look at it as a good thing, whether it was, it's a traumatic story of something we went through, or it's a victorious story of something that is amazing. When you own it, it's not as daunting, I don't think, right? <laughs> also, it's it's always important to remember, and I constantly try to remind myself of this, when you're reading somebody who's a quote-unquote writer-writer, like a, a professional writer, it never looks like that. Like, that's not what the first job no! looks like. The first job. <laughs> I mean, and I do think that that's probably the big differential between, like, I think everybody's a storyteller. I think if you want to be a writer in that way, it's in the rewriting. So you just have to get it out. And then once you have it out, you can figure out how to move around the words, but you just have to get it out first. And there's something about that inner critic in our head, that voice that's telling us, you know, what right do you have to say anything? This is so indulgent. This is so stupid. You know, like the, all the, the constant refrain that we all have, it's somehow finding a way to push past that, where somehow the desire and need to tell what you're trying to say is somehow even stronger than that inner critic. Yeah. That's always the the rub there. I yeah. Think. So when I wrote my memoir, like mm, two to three years ago, it's not even out yet. You know, it was What's it called. It's called My Father's House. And it's about just my my past, my childhood. Uh, it's really raw. The things I went through, how I found myself and my identity, my worth. How to identify the foundational lie and the foundational truth um, and how I found myself at home towards the end um, when I was looking for that safety and all the wrong things. So it was just throw up in the beginning. It was puke. It was like mouth to Microsoft Word. Okay. <laughs> it was a mess, but I knew I was supposed to write it. Okay. So let's not talk about me. Let's talk about you. So no, I mean, I, I began really writing as a place to put the sadness for so much of my teenage life until I was around 21. I was like the best bulimic in the world. I mean, I was fully high functioning, you know, I and we, we were talking before the show for a second about, you know, the faking aspect of, I think all women to a certain extent understand that you're wearing a mask to varying degrees. And um, when I stopped throwing up, that's when I really fell apart because I had nowhere to put that sadness. So when I started getting better and getting help, that's when I began writing. And I think that you saying you puked into the Microsoft Word. I, I mean, I, I I do think it's so much better than a garbage bag. 
Yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that is often what, what it, it is. Feels like. And it was exhausting to keep having to read it back during the editing process of it. You know, it's emotionally draining to relive those years, real life. But it is at the same time, as hard as it is, it's very healing as well as you've went through those things and you find yourself really reflecting on those times of your life, dealing with them. I, a couple of weeks ago, got very confused about it because I wrote this book like 18 years ago and I'm so far the person who wrote that book because that book's not autofiction or a memoir. Autofiction, I think that's the word I learned recently. That's what people call it now. But all the scenes are fake, but all the feelings of like shame, self-loathing, all of those are true. So, you know, it, it is personal and going through the book again, you know, talking to people about it, you know, it's, it sounds so silly, but it, it does, it does get you a little bit confused because you're not that person. So it's like, it's almost like you just don't even want to be in the same room and <laughs> catch true. it back. It's really true. <laughs> yeah. Like there were chapters that I'm like, I was offended by myself, right? I was just like, but it was the truth mm-hmm. and I had to get the truth out there. So I just, I swallowed it and I'm like, that's just a part of my story. And it's nothing I necessarily mm-hmm. should be ashamed about because I never know who is going to see that same reflection in themselves and want this and realize the changes can happen, right? That there's hope. But right. uh, speaking of that, your latest, A Mouthful of Air, it was compared to a seminal feminist work as such as Charlotte Perkins Gilman's A Yellow Wallpaper and Sylvia, and I've heard this one, Sylvia Plast's The Bell Jar. And it's a, it's like a really powerful, tragic statement on motherhood, family, and survival. And within the narrative of the book, A Mouthful of Air, is an argument about the nature of depression and its causes, cures, and the price it exact exactly from what it does to its victims. And with spare, elegant prose, this brutally honest portrayal of family and self illuminates the power and complexity of the human psyche. And when you wrote this novel a couple of years ago, what inspired you to put that down on paper? So my daughter is 21 and she was, I don't know, maybe a year old. I mean, I, I started writing this when I was pregnant with her and I have a 25 year old son. And now looking back, you know, the 20 something years, I realized that I was writing through the fear of, you know, what if I hadn't gotten the help I needed? What if I had made different choices? At the time, I wasn't aware of that. The only, I think if I was aware of what I was writing, I would never have written it because wow. I don't think anyone sets out to write that exact story. But I did know I was writing about shame, real, real shame, like the shame that we should feel for things that we did. And then the perceived shame that we feel because other people tell us or society tells us or, you know, our friends tell us that we should feel ashamed about it. And and what we allow for ourselves within, you know, the parameters of that shame, within the walls of that shame that we build around ourselves. So I was. I knew I was thinking about that and trying to understand that. And uh, really, it was just a place to, I just knew when I was writing it, I was feeling better. And I knew that I was a story, whatever the story ended up being that I yeah. just needed to tell. Whether or not anybody ever saw it, whether or not it ever got published, that wasn't right. something I was thinking about when I Same. started writing it. We have so much in common, more than you, more than you know, Amy, just in that journey <laughs> of 
self-healing. I'll bring it up again like we were talking about faking it. That's when I made the decision that that's exhausting. It's really exhausting to fake something and that I was just going to come as I was in every aspect of my life, no matter how messy or dirty that looks like. And so it's powerful just how in refreshing that you wrote something in regard of that's healing, not really understanding how much that can heal somebody else and without an agenda. I feel like there's some cultures, writing author cultures out there that they have an agenda and why they write something and it's super inauthentic and they're, you know, a little bit of self-help in the regard of like they all say the same thing. And it's not really helping us reflect on ourselves, right? And I was talking with a friend about that just recently. And so you just being authentic and writing something, going through something, it was powerful. And now it's going to be a movie. (laughs) I mean, that's amazing. So many women, including myself, have battled with postpartum depression. And that's what this is about, right? Like, ultimately, that's what this is about. And so I know so many women when I came forward with, hey, I battled with this and it was really, really bad. I was in my thoughts. I thought, you know, anybody else could be speaking of this. I thought I was better off gone. Like that was my thought process. Like it wasn't that I was like, I've heard a lot of people say different things. Like I was mad at God, but I wasn't mad at God. I felt like I was never good enough for him. And I felt like I was never good enough for would look at my children and I was holding my daughter in my room and I, and I just, it was dark. And I just remember my husband walked in there and he sat on the floor and I just finally came out with him. And I said, I obsess about killing myself and how I'm going to do it because Mm -hmm. I'm not that I want to die, but I am in so much pain. And I feel like you were all better off without me. I feel like you would have such a great life if Mm -hmm. I just didn't hold you back. And I knew in that moment when I was finally honest, I got, the help that I needed. And it was a journey. There was no timeline. There wasn't, my daughter's going to be this time. And I actually thought that I was so ignorant to this subject that I thought that first off, I'm a Christian. I shouldn't struggle with this. I had such a horrible like understanding of that. And then it went to, well, when my daughter turns this age, it'll go away. Right. Or if I do this, it'll go away. It never went away for two years. I struggled with that. And in a weird way, I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful that I because it, it's helped me be more compassionate, understanding with other people that have also struggled with it. And so on top of you know those thoughts, there's the physical heaviness, right? We feel it. It messes with us physically. And it can just be so much to bear. It's like a suffocation is the way I describe it. Like, I'm su- like you're suffocating. And I feel there's so much power in raising awareness for the simple fact that women just don't need to feel alone. There's power in that. And so I'm curious... What would you say as somebody else who has gone through this? What would you say to her and, you know, and why you wrote this? Like, I know that you wrote it for you, but there must have been something else. Well, the way I write, I just write and write until I hit a scene and then I understand, oh, that's, you know, what I'm trying to write about. And I remember writing. I do the same thing. I remember writing the last scene at the novel, in the novel. And I was in my, in the big closet. We were renting an apartment somewhere in California then. And um, my kids were with me and I was happy. Like I, I, I was taking medication. I was fine, which is why I think I was able to actually write the book because it gave me the strength to, but we can talk about medication in a second, but I, I wrote this last scene and I was like, I mean, this doesn't happen in the movie, but I was like, can a mother even hurt her own child? Like, is it even physically possible? 
And I remember going to um, the computer and typing, there wasn't Google, there was Ask Jeeves. I mean, you're too young to know that. And Hannah Mother heard her child. And it was the first time, and this like very rudimentary website came up. And it was the first, it said, the first time I saw the words postpartum depression. And I hadn't realized till that moment that that was a different depression in a way than, you know, the depression that I happen to have been used to, that I had experienced before. The thing about postpartum depression is you don't have to have ever experienced any kind of depression to get it. It can be, you know, a a one-off. And I think that that's particularly difficult because then you've given birth to this child and you were a healthy person before, and then you're supposed to be filled with joy and instead you're overwhelmed by fear. And I remember thinking I wanted to that it wasn't the darkness because they always portray depression as as the darkness it it was really the beauty that was so crippling to her the idea that you know everyone you ever love is going to die and you're going to have to say oh my gosh yes and just like the idea of wanting to almost preemptively strike to just try to get away from the pain of that but more you said exact, you said almost exact lines that Julie says in the movie where she's explaining it. And she says, I couldn't protect them. And I thought, you know, that they were better off without me. I think when you're very depressed like that, you really believe that the best thing that you could do for your child and your family, the best thing that you could do for your friends and anyone who loves them, the safest way you can keep the, the way you can keep your children safest is to take yourself out of the equation. And I remember at some point, like explaining that to my husband and he's like, well, you know, because you know how it doesn't damage the kid at all when their mother kills themselves. (laughs) Like, it's not like, you know, it's a nonsensical thing. And, you know, people have said to me, like, you know, if somebody knows the beauty and they see the beauty, then why would they think that it doesn't make sense that they would be at peace at that moment? Because they really believe, truly believe that the best thing is to for their children to live in the world without them. I did. And it, it doesn't make sense because the person's not well. I think that there are so many, you know, now they say that book, you know, 18 years ago when it came out, there were 20 people or something at this postpartum depression conference I went to. And now, you know, we know one out of every five women suffers from, you know, significant postpartum depression and like 80% of all women get like the baby blues, but still in so many places, people are ashamed to talk about it because I think as women in general, we're supposed to be strong. We're supposed to be maternal and maternal wanting to die and being maternal. Those, those are contradict you. you, I mean, how shameful, right? Like you don't appreciate this gift God gave you. You don't appreciate this chance at happiness. Like, Do you ever think of your kids without you? Like I've had somebody tell me like when I went through that, that was right for me. And I, it's so weird. You know how everybody has a different experience. So for me, I obsessed over children dying. Does that make any sense? Like, I mm-hmm. don't know why, but the heaviness, the yeah. burden that I couldn't save my kids and I couldn't take it anymore. It was so, it was so real. And it brought peace to my mind that I would, could just die. And it was so, and it's scary to explain that to anybody. Like, how do you just have, you can't have a conversation. And one time I opened up at one point there was, you know, I had been on medicine. I had started medicine and therapy 
and I'm all about it. And I still I still take it. And so I know that kind of burst shame a little bit was just like, you know, your kids would be devastated if you did that. Like how selfish, how selfish of you. Like, you don't know. Like my husband was like, that makes no sense. I mean, because look at what you would have, you know, uh, done. And yeah, I mean, I remember that, like just lying in bed and this was before I had my son. It was before, like I had started to get help. And I just remember like wanting to die so badly. And I didn't want to kill myself though, because I knew that would ruin my husband's life that I knew before, you know, that he would feel guilty and I loved him and didn't want him to feel guilty. So I remember I used to like pray that like angels would come down and get me. Like I can physically place myself and they would just like kind of bring me away, but it would be nobody's fault. Like nobody would feel guilty because it would just like, oh my God, that's a tragedy. Somehow like she just mysteriously died and you can go be happy now with a highly functioning person who deserves to be the mother of your children and spend her life with you, you know, like, but, you know, angels don't come down and rescue you and, you know, get in, in bed. But, you know, you have I had a thinking of just wanting to die, to go away and not hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I was more concerned about my husband being angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Like I was more concerned about him being angry and stressing him out. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Well, no, because you had kids when you felt this. I hadn't had kids when I was at this point. I hadn't had kids. So I wasn't leaving him with children who he was going to have to take care of. I was leaving him with a chance to find like a normal wife who was going to be a, you know, fully functional. I thought that too. I was just like, I said, I didn't feel worthy of life. Like I felt like I was a mistake in that. Like I just had all this deep guilt and I just, you deserve somebody that's going to make you happy. Right. You're too good for me. Yeah. And it's crazy that you said the angel thing. So I just, we just have so much in common, you guys. Um, When I was a kid, because of my childhood trauma, I would sit in bed every single night. It's in my memoir. And I would literally fantasize about, okay, this is the night that the Lord is going to come get me. I know it because he doesn't want me to suffer like this. And every night I had that prayer that I would just die. I struggled with suicidal thoughts my whole life. And I've attempted at my younger ages. And then I was fine for a while. And then boom. And it came hard. Yeah. It came really hard. And I'm so grateful that I have the help that I have. And so I have a question for you because I you're absolutely brilliant <laughs> to me. What are your thoughts on this? Why is this subject not talked about. And we talked about shame a little bit, but I feel like we don't have enough resources. What are your thoughts on that? Like, why is well, that? I think that there's, I think that there's many more resources than if you go on Google, you can find like in terms of postpartum, there's postpartum support international. There's a lot of, you know, suicide organizations, mental health organizations, and a lot of ways to get treatment. I think people don't understand that depression, all the, you know, real, you know, chronic depression is no different than asthma or diabetes. It's, you know, if you had asthma and you couldn't breathe, you would take an inhaler and you wouldn't feel ashamed about it. If you had diabetes, had a headache. Yeah. You would, if you had a headache, you take the Tylenol. Because there's no way to like measure this in an, there's no easy way to like 
take an easy blood test and say like your X when you should be, you know, when the the right number is Y, you know, you, the nature of depression is something that says like, oh, you're just not strong enough. Oh, you're spoiled. Oh, it just reaffirms the symptoms of depression. So it makes you hopeless. So you don't then ask for help. And, you know, I never thought that this would be a movie. I mean, who would think of making this book a movie? And I was driving down the West Side Highway. I was picking my one of my kids up from school and I was driving down the West Side Highway in the city. And I heard a radio show. It must have been like doctor's radio or something. And somebody had called in from the middle of the country and she was describing all the things you were describing. And she was crying on the phone like, you know, I, I don't want anyone to hear me. You know, she wouldn't go to, you know, speak to anybody in her, you know, clergy or ministry or temple, you know, whatever religion she was, she was too ashamed for that. She didn't want to tell her husband. She couldn't tell her friends because they were all really happy. And she couldn't tell her husband because he would be, you know, horrified. And I remember thinking like, wait, this is still a thing. You know, I mean, I knew like more that like people talk about this now that there are some famous people that talk about it. And so like, it's a term, people know that term, but I, you know, if you live in New York or California or Chicago, you know, you think, oh, everybody knows the words gotten to everybody because you're living in a city. But in truth, so many people, and I think we really saw this during, you know, and still during the pandemic, like the structure of the homes is so, so relies on the mother, right? And it's like the, the mother should feel and understand that if she's not strong and she's not well, you know, the home is going to, you know, implode. But instead, we we still feel the need to be strong and perfect and to keep the little house, you know, that we draw when we're little erect. And there's some disconnect between getting help and that helping you be able to keep the things that you want to keep together. I think because nobody talks about it or so few people talk about it, you think all your friends are happy and you think all your friends are different than you, but you can be sure that 80% of them have felt, you know, if you're sitting with four kids and four moms in the park with four kids, you could be sure that there's another mother or two that has had similar feelings, maybe not to the same degree, you know, maybe they weren't suicidal Maybe they don't hate themselves as much and they're just scared. But like every person, under, every mother understands this because you have this baby and it comes into the world and you look at it and it's just this beautiful little thing. And somehow you've been tasked with having to keep this thing alive, having to somehow, the, the baby comes out perfect, right? So I remember looking at each of my kids and thinking like my whole job in life is just to keep them as close to this moment, to not ruin them. And this idea that I would be incapable of not breaking them, incapable of not hurting them, you know, emotionally. I mean, I would never hurt somebody physically. And that wasn't anything I was ever worried about, but just like hurting them, like giving them the wrong answers, not, you know, not protecting them. It was constantly the not being able to protect them. And it's funny, like um, before COVID, I had walked into a coffee shop and I saw these like three young moms sitting around and I was waiting online and they were having, you know, with, I guess, like a, a coffee morning. And one of them was talking about screen time and how much screen time they allow their child. And I had like never heard that term screen time because I'm like old. 
she was like, well, I only allowed 20 minutes. And then, you know, the other one started talking somehow about like, well, what do you feed Kenny? Like, you know, do you, and I realized this idea of how much, and, and my inclination was like, I wanted to go over them and say like, don't worry. Like, it's okay if you give an Oreo, like an Oreo is not going to be the thing that ruins them. But then I realized like, we kind of put these things on ourselves if we only let the kid watch for 20 minutes, if we only give organic cookies. And it's actually coming from a desperate place to try to keep them safe. We tell ourselves that if we do these things, we'll keep them safe and we need them. So I understood why this idea of screen time or the food that they were talking about is so important. So it clarified that for me. And so I think when you're depressed, you have no guardrails on those thoughts and you, this idea that you're just going to hurt them, meaning you're going to not keep them safe, like not hurt them, hurt them. You're going to fail them. It's just, it's a lot. It's for some people, it's just too much to bear. And um, Julie is an extreme example. It's a cautionary tale. Like I said, like I guess I was writing through the fear of what if I hadn't gotten the help that I needed Um, when I was pregnant with my daughter before getting pregnant with her, I'd finally gone on antidepressant medications after my son. And it's like all the things that they say, you know, all the cliches were true. You know, everything went from black and white to color. I was able to feel much more because there was a, a trampoline underneath me. So like, I knew that if I was in free fall, something was going to catch me. And, you know, so that idea that, oh, you're going to be numb is, is not a true thing. It makes you actually be able to listen to a song and feel the song and cry and not completely fall apart where you think I'm never, I'm going to start crying now and never be able to stop crying. Right. So I was basically, you know, praying to a prescription container of Zoloft. That's what I was taking the time, like, eight more months till I can take it, seven more months, you know, four more days, two more days, one more day. And then there she was and she was, she came out and she was so beautiful and I had her leaning against my chest and she just like started breastfeeding. And I thought, wait a second, like I can't not breastfeed her. Like I've made it through these nine months and I made it through, you know, 24, 23 years before I ever took antidepressants in the first place. Like that's another right. six weeks. If I breastfeed her for six weeks, I will give her all the nutrients that she needs to keep her safe. And so I went home, like, I didn't say anything. It wasn't like I was lying. I mean, no one would have said like, did you take medicine? I, I mean, I brought the medicine to the hospital. I couldn't wait to take the medicine. And then around five days in, I saw like, oh, I'm about to hit the wall. Like I, like a train, like I just was like, And I remember calling my husband at work and saying that I wasn't taking the medicine. And when he comes home from work, I'll take it. He said, take it now. And I said, no, I need to wait for you to come home from work so that when I take it, you can check under my tongue because I don't trust myself to swallow it. Because this idea of breastfeeding her and failing her by not breastfeeding her was so much stronger than, you know, wanting to live. So you know, and it took me a really long time to get over not breastfeeding her, the guilt of that. She's allergic to everything. She's allergic to nuts. She's allergic to soy. And which is, soy is like the worst thing to be allergic to. It's in everything. And 
It's in it's everything. Like, it's just, I mean, and she's not like a little allergic. She's like anaphylactic to those things. And there is still part of me that goes, well, maybe if I had breastfed her, she wouldn't have had those allergies. And like in 21 years, there's been no correlation between those things. But, you know, the guilt of, of that. That we yeah, carry. Because I was like, why wasn't I strong enough? And that is the voice of depression because we feel that it's about weakness and strength. And so in terms of, I think your original question was, you know, why is it still in the shadows? And especially for women, it's because it hits on all our things. Like you don't want to feel like you're not being grateful when you've been given this gift. You don't want to feel weak and you're disappointing everybody. You want to be strong. And so it makes you just think that you can kind of like white knuckle through when you wouldn't think about that if you had asthma, if you had asthma and you were playing with your kids in the park and you were wheezing, you would be like, oh no, I have to go to the doctor. And you you would pull your inhaler out of the bag. But because I think we do somehow equate it to weakness and strength. You know, I, I was looking when those poor moms, when the planes were taking off in Afghanistan and they were there with their children. And I was like, oh my and gosh. I was like, Oh my God, how could I have, like, look at how, look at them. I mean, this is so horrible. Look at, and then of course I immediately somehow, maybe I'm just like a narcissist, but I immediately thought, what, I couldn't handle living on West 77th street in New York city. Like that, like, you know, I am, I still feel guilty and ashamed about being weak, even though I know that it's not about weakness and strength, even though I, spend my life trying to convince people of that. Like I basically prophetize that still in that moment, my reflexive, my, my reflex was to, to remember like, God, you were so weak when you, you would never have been able to do that. Look at how weak you were. So I, I think it's just depression itself, the voice of depression, the symptoms of depression reinforce our self-loathing and our hopelessness. Gosh, I should break yeah. that down because that's such an easier way to get to that answer. But that's uh, what I think it is. It reinforces our self-loathing yeah. and our... And with weakness, we describe it in different ways, right? It all surrounds a fear and it all surrounds failure, right? That we're failing people somehow. And it, it goes into that. And so I think that a lot of things that, that have somehow, you know, we do talk about it, but do we really talk about it, right. right? Like we raise awareness and we and we talk about it. I think as a mom in the moment, like it's like, am I depressed? And how do I say that? And who do I say it to, right? And so in that realm, it's like, I just want her to feel so empowered. And it's not even empowerment, but just feel so safe to be like, I am struggling with postpartum depression. And I think that social media and the culture that we live in you know, seeing videos like that, like whether it's the worst of the things that's going on in Afghanistan, we see that we all cry, especially mothers, or it's the best. And you have the woman who has got, who seems to have it all together. It all really triggers this. I'm failing. I'm weak on the inside. Right. And I think that what is what makes people isolate even worse is because they see those two things. And so I, I do think though that and I never, I mean, this is my hot take as my kids say, I'm not even sure I believe this, but I do think in talking about it, that it's much more community-based. It's as much community-based as social media-based. Like, yes, on 
a lot of the superficial things, like I joke with my daughter, like, thank goodness, I don't have to make you lunch for school anymore. Because, you know, you see these videos. And I mean, I used to cut her stuff into hard shapes or decorate her lunch bags. But now, you know, people make sandwiches that like, are 3D hearts that pop and sing, have a great day, you know, and I'm always just like, you know, and you see those Instagram things. And of course, I think all of us are just like, oh, shucks, I can't make, you know, I can't help you with your heart like that. Yeah. But I do think that it's it's community-based in the sense that, and family-based that if your mother doesn't tell you, and if your aunts or any of the women around you don't tell you, and the gynecologist does not tell you, and none of your friends tell you, then you are sure that you are a freak. And again, that's mm. what the depression is reaffirming, right? So you're getting the validation from the one voice you shouldn't be listening to. And there's no other voices that are telling you differently. I think it's yeah. basically one of those things that like women, older women or moms have to just look out for younger women who are new moms. And in fact, it's funny that that, that expression new moms, uh, I was like, oh, but that's so-and-so's second child. And the psychiatrist I was speaking about when I was like, should I say new moms? And he said, every time somebody has a child, they are a new mom again. So like, I think we have to look out for our friends and our family and look for it. I mean, twice I've had the conversation with friends. It's a really hard conversation because you're basically saying, I've been watching you and I can see you're failing even though that's not what you're saying, like, that's what they're going to hear. I've been watching you and I know you're in trouble. And it's like, oh my God, you can see it. Like I've worked so hard. (laughs) Wait, I see, I really am failing, but you have to actually like take that person by the hand and check under their tongue. So like, don't just say, I think this, like, say like, I think this, and we need to go speak to this person. We need to call this organization. We need to call Postpartum International. We have to call our local chapter of Postpartum International. And I'm going to drive you there and we're going to meet with somebody. Because when you're depressed, you're so hopeless that the idea of anything fixing it is impossible. So you, you could even hear your friend and know your friend means well, right? Like, and still not do anything about it. I think it's very, very small gestures that build upon themselves. And, you know, as a community, you know, we talk more now about sexual assault as women. We talk more about the vulnerability we feel as women, like your age talks so much more about it, except so much less than my age did. And my daughter's age is like, no, to any, you know, there's, there, there is a line and you don't cross that line. And so there is a way that, you know, when my daughter's, I had this really wonderful moment where my daughter said, oh, you know who you need to find on Instagram? And she sent me, this was like six months ago. uh, I think her name is Bird's Papaya or something like that. And she has, and she's like, look, she's pregnant and she has depression while she's pregnant. And she was talking about having perinatal depression. And I thought what was so great was that somehow that came upon my daughter's feed and that somehow she had known from me that that's a thing that I had told her about and that that was a thing that was okay to talk about so I think if we do it hand by hand and people are honest and and use social media for the good instead of just going like if you don't have this uh cashmere blanket then you have really failed so go you know work your house to get this blanket you know 
But I think that there's a real chance. And so that's why when I was driving down the West Side Highway, I thought, okay, people don't read. The book you wrote 18 years ago is really dark. You don't actually feel that dark. Like you have, and, but people watch movies and figure out who could be the face of this, who is a kind enough, sweet enough, good enough person that you forgive her and, and can see yourself in her. And um, I wrote to Amanda, I actually wrote to her husband because um, he was in the movie I Smile Back and I was like, I knew she had had a baby. I knew she had had OCD. She actually never had postpartum depression, but I knew that she had OCD. I sent her the book and I went and met with her in the movie, Julie's a children's book author. You'll, you'll love the animation. It, you'll really love it. But I thought maybe seeing her struggle will will be able to help people forgive themselves because she's so good. And in her performance, it's just heartbreaking because she just gives everything, every bit of feeling and you know, shame or doubt or anything we can project onto her. And it just begins a conversation. Now you have one friend who, who's had this, but what you know is that Julie misses so much, right? You know, I don't think it's like, uh, I'm not into like, don't say what happens. Like Julie ends up taking her life. And in the movie, you see her children, you know, she just missed, misses all of it. And, and so Amanda and I, in our own little way are like, no, no one deserve no, no one's that bad that they deserve to miss that first ballet recital and seeing their daughter fall in love and seeing, you know, their son play football and they are better with you in the world. And so if in some small way we can keep telling people like your analogy of suffocations, right? Just take one more breath, just get to the next spot, just speak to somebody, you know, it sounds so basic, like just ask for help but just ask for help because as ashamed as you feel asking for help, think about how horrible a thing you are if you take your life. I mean, those same people you're scared to ask for help aren't going to be singing your praises. Forgive yourself. I think one of the reasons, and this is just my own, this isn't based on anything, I don't think, but um, I think for many of us, when we have children, it forces us to examine ways in which we were hurt as children. And we're forced to see how vulnerable we were because we see how vulnerable our children are. And it pierces that, you know, denial that we've built around ourselves so that we can survive. And then once that wall of denial is pierced, it's just, it's like a dam, right? Like it's just an emotionally flooding, you know, uh, the breaking of a dam. So I think those two things happening at the same time and the hormones, the physiological part, it's like a perfect storm for certain women. And so I think you talking about it, I think mom's groups talking about it. I think nursery school teachers looking for it, you know, uh, healthcare people looking for it. I think it's basically, if we start with just caring and taking the time to just look at the person to just actually see if that person in the supermarket who seems scattershot because she dropped like the cold cereal and stuff like wait is she okay and just like are you okay and you know it's all those little tiny things that they talk about in the bible and we just actually just need to do them more and don't dismiss it so it goes along with 
When can we expect the movie mm-hmm. to come out? And you wrote a newer addition to the yes, novel. Yes, it has an afterword. And I wrote a children's book for the movie. So I'm trying to figure out what to do with that. But uh, yeah, that movie comes out on October 29th, only in theaters. Um, we're really trying to get people to go to the movies. I, oh, I didn't even say this. Like I have gotten a couple Instagram things where they said like, I told my husband, that's how I got the idea. You're watching the kids on Saturday. <laughs> I was like, good. That's good. Make it a date and go with your friends to the movies. Self-care, self-care, girls night out. I used to go to the movies by myself. I started to sing. One yeah, day. I loved that. This last year, mm-hmm. I would just go by myself and have lunch by myself. And it was great. Yeah, it gives you a lot of place for your brain to kind of just rest. You're not taking care of anybody or whatever. You're like, like, wait, don't choke on the popcorn. Don't choke on the milk duds. Wait, sit in your seat. You're able to just like go to the movies and be just like, whoa. <laughs> right, right. Like you don't have to worry about anything around you. And you know, depression's such a crazy thing. I mean, I called my psychiatrist a couple weeks ago and I literally said these words to her. Did I have depression? Like, I mean, the denial of, you know, the shame of it even now, I was like, you know, when I'm speaking to people, am I lying? Like, did this real, you know, and I mean, it's insane. Like, of course I had it. Like, but you know, your mind plays tricks. So, you know, if, if you take a second to, to, if you're somebody who understands that and you take a second to look at somebody, you can see often when they're right when there's pain behind somebody's eyes and there's power there's so much power in someone not feeling alone it's everything it's everything and that's my heart in everything that i do that's why i made a decision for for me personally i was going to be completely transparent in mm-hmm. everything it's like so everything. much easier because you, you it's like it, it's so exhausting <laughs> <laughs> to be to try to cover up everything and and not only that, and I know you can agree with me, Amy, but in regard of like depression, like and living, trying to have it all together and live this fake life and how exhausting it is, it's also, it can make you feel more isolated and shameful. Right, you're good at it, it can make you feel more like a failure. More like a yeah. fraud. And I think it's feel like a yeah. fraud because you're like, wait a second. We call that imposter syndrome now. Did yeah. you know that? I, I guess that's it's like that. you have an imposter syndrome of actually being a good person or a good mother. And it's like, nah, it's so it's much easier just to yeah. uh, win and fail as yourself. I remember because you're talking about holding your daughter and your husband. And I remember looking at my daughter and thinking and my son and thinking, like, how could something this beautiful come out from like inside my decay? Like this ugly, wormy, horrible place. Like there's been a mistake here. And I'm not worthy of this and they're too beautiful and somebody's going to figure out this mistake. And once that mistake is figured out, you know, it's going to be a problem. And I, I, I mean, I think it's a normal thing to look at your children and think you've been blessed and they're so beautiful and you can't believe that they're your children. It's just what happens when you're, when you're sick, when you need asthma medication is it turns on itself and, you know, somehow it becomes something that makes you feel so ashamed and so unworthy and you have no ability to control the volume. Sadly and tragically, I think that because so many young men got hurt in the war and started talking about PTSD and taking medication, I think that tragically that's helped in a little bit kind of at least 
for men, I don't know if this trickled down to women, but feel less kind of ashamed. I have PTSD. And if I can encourage as well, if you're listening to this and you're like, whoa, right? That's me. And I always think of the listener and I always think of her. When I know Amy can say this, when we came out with it, we could breathe. When we got help, like for me, when I was like, oh my gosh, I I am now, I now know I have this problem. And I now know it is postpartum depression. And I now know I'm not alone. And whatever that is, even if that is PTSD, whatever that is, you can breathe. Let your like you said, let yourself breathe. Like there, like when I came out with that and I was like, whoa, was I carrying all that weight? And it was lifted off of me. It was a it was healing process, but it was. I was able to breathe because I wasn't carrying this weight. You got medication and you started talking to people. I mean, I believe in all the self-help stuff. I believe, you know, in the self-care and and meditate, you know, everyone in my house meditates. I don't, I probably should, but like it is an illness and you would get medicine if it was asthma, but asthma, you're going to die. If you don't get air, you're going to die. Like if you can't, you know, repress your lungs so that they function properly. And like, that's the thing it's, it's telling somebody and then getting help. It's not because if you just tell somebody, you'll feel better in that moment. You'll feel less. Oh, I said the words and the sky didn't fall in, but you will still be ravaged. It's an illness. Okay. So I struggled with that personally. Like, so I was so grateful that I took medication but for I sat on my counter for yeah. two days and my husband would write a note every single day, babe, it's okay. You can take this. And and there was a lot of things. It was, I failed. I'm weak, right? right? But there was also the realm of the, my mother was an addict and I had this really stigma, this believing stigma that like it was bad that my, I needed that right. medication. It was bad. And I had to get past all of those things. Yeah, or the medication was- something bad to me like oh the medication is bad big pharma is bad like you know all those things like why can't i get this on my yeah. own like for me it was like why can't i figure Look this at everybody out on my else own? they are yeah right i i that's why i'm grateful that yeah. i went through that you can tell people to take the medication and honestly if you get postpartum depression and you're not somebody who's had like two or three different episodes of depression the medication, when it's working properly, like you'll go on it for around six months, seven months, and you'll be able to go off the medication. It's not uh, something that you have to stay on forever, unless you're somebody who has real, like, you know, clinical depression. And then, you know, you stay on it. You're just so freaking grateful that it's going to make you, you know, not want to be intimate with your partner. Like when you're really drowning in depression, it's not like you're wanting to be romantic anyway. Like it's not, you know, all those things, the piece, you're not going to be able to be creative. That's just not true. That's lies. Yeah, That's lies. So, uh, I'm on it. And honestly, real life, and you guys know I keep it real. I'm probably going to be on it for the rest of my life. And that's why I'm grateful that I, it got, it hit the way it hit because then I realized how long I had suffered with it. It just wasn't as bad. And so there's nothing wrong with that. You're stronger for doing it, like for taking medication. And it never affected my creativity and made it better. And it never affected my marriage and made it better because we had just, we had connected and we had gotten closer with something that, you know, 
that if I didn't share it, he wouldn't really know me, right? I would have been closed off. And so, yeah, I definitely, all those lies and those fears like are untrue. They're completely untrue. Definitely go to a doctor. I love you so stinking much. Honestly, real life, I don't want to edit any of this you don't because have to edit any of it. I, I feel, and maybe you do too. Yeah. I'm a feeler. I'm very in tune with my feelings and I can feel other people. It's right. a thing. And so I feel like people are not concerned. People are hurting so much in these past few years have hurt so much that they are not concerned with the quality of things that there the quantity or the technicalities of stuff, but they want the yeah. content, the authentic, real content. They are looking for that hope and that raw realness because they have been played. And and I feel like people don't, have a hard time trusting people. And so I want, I am making it like a decision that in my platform, I'm just coming as I'm coming. That is it. And and I'm cool if that's not for everybody. I'm not for everybody and I was right. never meant to be. I want them to feel a part of the conversation. I want them to know that we screw up and we make mistakes and I'm in my closet. And that's <laughs> where we, you know what I'm saying? We are people and they are people and, and we're no different. You know what I'm saying? We're like, we're no yeah. better than them. We have just been able to come out on the other side that something in us was able to figure it out, whether somebody helped, like we, and so what's that expression? You can pay it forward. It's like, we have to, because it'd be really great if by the time your children are grown up, that this is just something that, you know, they take your blood pressure. They ask you after, oh, this is actually important. If anybody's listening and pregnant and they're feeling weird or they had a baby, you have to get your thyroid checked Often I did three times. <laughs> often a low thyroid can mirror depression, and that there's um something called postpartum Hashimoto's thyroiditis. I actually got that. And so if you're feeling these feelings, the first thing you can do is like get your thyroid checked, get you know, and go to the doctor. And then if your thyroid's normal, you know, and the first time, even you know, don't wait, like talk to the doctor. And call postpartum depression international. They'll help you. They have lots of local chapters. And you know, find the one person in your life that you think you can trust. And often when you're depressed, yeah. you know, you think, well, nobody, but there, there's somebody. So whoever that person is, just tell them that, you know, you're not feeling well and to get better and, you know, have them drive you there or something. So, yeah. And, and that's another thing, like there is somebody to call, like you said, like, even if you don't go to somebody physically, there is a, a line to call and tell them how you're feeling. And it's like a safe place. And so there is, there is connections and help out there. And I pray and believe that whoever is listening is going to take that step in doing that. So Amy, where can we stay up to date to when the movie comes out and like follow it until it comes out? And I, well, I have um, an Instagram. It's Amy Koppelman, but I think there's like an underline in it somewhere. And there's a mouthful of air Instagram that I think is just a mouthful of air, not yes. a mouthful of air movie. Basically, it it's comes out on October 29th, and I'm really hoping people go and see it with their friends or their moms or their husbands. This, I don't know if you know this actor, Finn Whitrock, he's in like the American Horror Story. Uh, he plays the husband, and um, 
you know, this does not seem like a movie that a man would want to go to, except for a man who's loved a woman like this, like your husband would understand so many of the emotions of how, you know, the collateral damage of depression and how the person who loves the person who's depressed is almost like in an emotional jail because they can't do anything because they don't want to upset them. They're so scared too, because they can't help this person that they love, who's the mother of their children. And I think you see that in the movie. I hope you see that he he gives a really good performance. Yeah, so Amy underlined Koppelman and I'm reachable there. That's that's uh, where you can find me. I, I know how to work it a little bit now. The one message is like, every mother has the right and the privilege to get to see their child grow up. Don't miss that. So good. So good. Amy, I'm honored. I'm honored that you came on Motherhood. Thank you for having me. Very meaningful conversation. Yes, it was. And I knew it would be. I was so excited about it. And it's like, I'm not going to cry as much, but it, you know, when you go through something, it resonates, right? Yeah. And I hope to stay in touch. Like it's very recent to you and it's very far away from me. And yet, you know, I remember it clearly. So you don't you're you're looking over your shoulder, you know, trying to hope that that darkness yeah. doesn't get you. Anyway, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. I hope to stay in touch. Make sure to let me know what you think of the movie when you see it, okay? Oh, I can't wait. I'm going to go by myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. Bye, Amy. Thank you. Make sure to go visit my website at ashleyhenriot.com where you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in Motherhood Unfiltered, I would really appreciate you dropping a rating on iTunes and maybe encouraging a friend to join us too. I'd love to see you on TikTok or Instagram where I keep it real (laughs) in the reels. (laughs) Be sure to tune in next time. And thanks for listening to Motherhood Unfiltered. Unfiltered.